Well, good morning, Summit Church. How are you doing this morning? Awesome. Um, good to hear everybody's awake. My name's Spence. I'm one of the pastors here. If you've been around our church um, for any time, you'll know that we are walking through, as a church family, the book of Acts together. It's, that's where I want you to turn this morning to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 18. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor J.D. preached through Acts 17. Last week, he preached through Acts 19 because he needed a man to preach through Acts 18. So that's what we're doing this morning. That's why I'm here, okay? Because <laughs> um, this might be recorded. So, all right, here's we're going to be in Acts 18. And the best way I can describe Acts 18 for you, I want you to hold on to this throughout the course of the message, it's kind of like a yearbook for the first church, specifically the first church in the city of Corinth. So this is the church yearbook that we're going to look through. Anybody remember their middle school yearbook photo? Huh? Everybody kind of begrudgingly, uh, that thing. Well, I recognize that especially middle school yearbooks, I think middle school yearbooks are actually um, a conspiracy between parents and teachers to create blackmail to be used against us for the rest of our lives, right? That's what that was. And some of you, most of you have blocked it out entirely because it's such a traumatic season of life, middle school. So I did the honorable, noble thing and got a picture of my wife from the seventh grade to show you, right? This should be coming up on the screen. That's Courtney in the seventh grade. Isn't that awesome, right? Um, those things, you could put, you know, a whole food dish on those glasses. They're so big. Okay, so I, then I figure if I'm throwing her under the bus, I got to throw myself under the bus. So this is my yearbook photo. This is, oh, isn't that beautiful, right? Apparently I was giving surfing lessons following the taking of the photo. Um, I won't stop there. Our campus pastor, Todd Unziker, in the seventh grade. You just saw him a second ago up here. I love this one, our associate campus pastor, he'll be up here in a minute, that's Chuck Reed, who manages to look cool even in a sixth grade yearbook photo. I don't know how he pulls that off. And then our lead pastor, this is Pastor J.D. Greer in the seventh grade, right? Already scheming. And then I want to show you one more. This one right here is, this is Courtney, she's now grown up from seventh grade, this is her twelfth grade photo. And this is actually for all of you high school guys, that's the year that we met. So with God, all things are possible because somehow that dude got that girl, right? Isn't that incredible? All right, you can take that down because otherwise we'll be staring at that the whole time. Um, the yearbook, man, I got to thinking as I was reading through this chapter, um, thinking about how this is kind of the yearbook of the church at Corinth. I was thinking, okay, what's a yearbook? A yearbook is the whole year summed up in a book, right? It's a snapshot of life from that year. And I started thinking, man, if I were to take a snapshot of my life now... What would it say about me? Like if you have that little bio under your yearbook picture, like Spence Shelton, soccer team and baseball team and ecology club and drama club and history club because my SATs weren't that good. So I needed some resume boosters. So I get into college, had all these clubs, right? Don't knock me. So that was then. But what about now? Like what would the snapshot be? What would like my life be characterized by? And maybe another way to ask that question is, what am I living for now? What am I living for? What am I giving my time and energy to? You see, as you meet the church in Corinth, you're going to see real quickly what they were living for. It was a group of everyday people who decided to live for God's plan for their lives. In fact, the main takeaway for today, if you had to sum it up in one sentence, God accomplishes his plan through everyday people. That's it. God accomplishes his plan through everyday people. We're going to meet all different kinds of people in this church that have one thing in common. Their belief in the gospel caused them to change their plans for their life. And we're going to see it over and over. Their belief in the gospel caused them to change their plans for their life. This is what we're going to do. 
We're going to read Acts 18, specifically verses 1 through 11. That's where we're going to kind of sit down and refer to the others. We're going to meet the class, right? And then we're going to see a few questions, a few signs to know if you are living God's plan for your life or maybe just your own. So let's jump in. Acts 18, verse 1. It should be on the screen. Here we go. After this, this was Acts 17 when Paul was in Athens. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. The first people to show up in our yearbook are Aquila and Priscilla. They've been literally kicked out of their country under religious persecution and have fled to Corinth as refugees. That's where God begins building his church, to refugees. Think about this. How God is going to use them begins with the total upheaval of their lives. When life looked totally finished and they were just in survival mode in this new city, that's where God got started with them. And that needs to be an encouragement to some of you today. I know we're only like five minutes into the message, but some of you are going to leave with that right there. That he takes what looks like a dead end and uses it as a beginning. Are you in a dead end situation? Life not turning out how you expected. You're not getting the, com- the promotion. You're losing your job. You're getting dumped again. You didn't get into that school. Are you a refugee? Great news. Your plan for your life might look like a dead end, but God is just getting started with you. Man, God used a couple of tent-making refugees to start the church in Corinth because he uses everyday people with everyday problems and everyday situations to carry forward the greatest hope in the world. And it's not just that he can use you. It's that he plans to. Let's keep going. Verse 3, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he was a tent maker too, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Basically, they made tents during the week, and then they talked about Jesus at night, and then Paul went and preached on the weekend. The life of the church planter, not very glamorous. Keep going. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. Next up in our yearbook. Silas and Timothy, they are the interns, all right? They're the interns who brought money and supplies from the church over in Macedonia, and we know they're interns because they do a whole lot to make the ministry happen, but we never hear about them again, right? At least not until another chapter. See, then Paul gets rejected by the Jews right here. We'll see it in verse 6, and he goes off to the Gentiles when he does. So look at verse 7. He left there. He went to the house of a man named Titius Justus a worshiper of God. That means a Gentile who was a Christian. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. The next two pictures in our Corinthian yearbook are Titius and Crispus, Gentile believer, Jewish believer. Titius is going to put his neck out on the line just by housing Paul. Right? I mean, there's an angry Jewish mob building in Corinth, and it's coming after the guy in his guest room. Right? But the gospel had changed his plans for his life. And then look at Crispus. He puts himself out on the line just by being a synagogue ruler who decides to follow Jesus. I mean, think about that. Synagogue ruler 
who becomes a Christian kind of necessitates a career move, right? I mean, I guess he could have come in next week and been like, hey, guys, you want to read out of the New Testament this week? I've been in the Old Testament for years. I got to tell you about this guy I met, right? That might work once. It's not going to work, right? Choosing to follow Christ is going to require turning his whole life upside down. But it was worth it for him. The gospel was worth the change of plans for him. And he's not alone. Look over at verse 17. We're not going to sit there, but in verse 17, we meet a guy named Sosthenes. Sosthenes was another synagogue ruler who we learned later became a Christian. He actually helped Paul write one of the letters to the Corinthian church. And Sosthenes gets beaten nearly to death for becoming a Christian. I don't think that was in his 10-year plan, right? All of three of these guys, they risk a lot. Why? Because they had believed the gospel and that belief changed their plans for their life. And the verse ends with, verse 8 ends with, and many Corinthians believed. Now, this is the, like, um, this is the big class photo out on the lawn, right? The rest of the Corinthians. This is the big picture. And it's really the whole point of Acts 18, and it's actually the whole point of the book of Acts. God doing extraordinary things through everyday people. See, I think what God wants, you, God wants to show us in this chapter is regardless of your background, of your race, of your profession, God has a plan for you, and that plan ends with people believing in Christ and getting baptized. And, of course, we've got one guy left, right? We've got Paul, the quarterback, QB1, right? He was still afraid. Look at verse 9. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. The first thing God says to Paul is, do not be afraid. Do you know why? Because he was afraid. Paul was afraid. His first letter to the church at Corinth, to this church that he's planting now, it's over in chapter 2, like verse 3. He's going to say, I came to you in fear and trembling when I first came and in weakness. He was afraid because he had already been beaten and rejected once before. And he kind of knows, because he's been in this for a little while, that he's going to be beaten and rejected again. And this is important. That scared him because he's not Superman. He is actually an everyday guy. He's the leader of the church, but he's an everyday guy, just like you and me. And he's scared of what's coming for him. And that should actually be an encouragement to you because when Paul decided to live out God's plan, even Paul got scared of what that might mean for his life. See, God's calling some of you to change your plans radically, but he's calling all of us to change our plans in some way, and that might freak you out. And when it does, you need to know you're in good company, the company even of the Apostle Paul. More on that later. See, what Acts 18 is pointing to very simply is that God accomplishes his plan through everyday people. His plan, make disciples. His tools, you and me. Everyday people, white collar, blue collar, redneck collar, right? We've got synagogue rulers. We've got clergy. We've got interns. We've got some people whose lives have been totally flipped upside down and some people who are going to stay on their trajectory of their career paths, all with one thing in common, their belief in the gospel caused them to change their plans for their life. 
So here's the question you should leave with today. Here's the question you should talk with your friends, with your family, with your small group if you're getting together. Here's the question I want to keep you up at night until you wrestle with it. How are your plans changing because of your belief in the gospel? How are your plans changing because of your belief in the gospel? So I want to look back at this chapter and show you three ways the gospel changed their plans and use those as kind of three questions to get at how is the gospel changing your plans? Are you living for your plan or for God's plan? So maybe three questions to ask to know if you're living out God's plan for your life. Here we go. Number one, are you investing into others or are you living on an island? Watch how this chapter unfolds. Here's how this chapter starts. A guy named Paul shows up from Athens, and he meets up with Aquila and Priscilla, who show up from Rome, and they meet up together in Corinth. And here's what Paul does. Paul invests his life into these two refugees, Aquila and Priscilla. And we know he invests his life into them because he's going to write about them in three other letters. And it's actually, at one point, what we're going to see is Aquila and Priscilla are house church leaders in Corinth sometime down the line. So we know that Paul is passing along what he has received from God. He's passing it along to Priscilla and Aquila. And they are hearing that. They become so close, such good friends, that they actually get on a boat about halfway through Acts 18, and they go over to a city called Ephesus. This is me and Paul and all those people on a boat, right? So we're now on a boat. All right, we're over here. We're in Ephesus, right? In Ephesus, the, Paul's going to leave them and go off. So Paul bounces. He goes off to do ministry all around the Mediterranean. And Aquila and Priscilla are here now in Ephesus trying to start up another church. And they hear a guy preaching. It's at the end of the chapter 18. If you look down there, 24 through 28. And it's a guy named Apollos. Now, Apollos in our yearbook, he's the valedictorian, right? He never studies, but he gets straight A's and we all hate him, right? You know the guy I'm talking about. And he is learned in the things of God. And he's accurately teaching the things of Jesus, but he only knows of them up until the baptism of John, when John baptized Jesus. Apollos doesn't know the end of the story. But Aquila and Priscilla do because Paul invested into them when they were over in Corinth and they learned the story. They learned the things of God. So they hear Apollos preaching and they say, Apollos, come over here. And says they pulled him aside. We don't know if it was one time or if it was a series of conversations over months, but we know that they gave up tent making. And if you don't make tents, you don't get paid. They gave up that time to sit down with Apollos because God's plan was more important than their plan. They sit down with him and they explain the things of God to him. And then here's what happens next down at the end of the chapter. Apollos gets back on a boat, goes back over to Corinth, and starts leading the church in Corinth. And it says he blessed many people, and all the Corinthians were blessed by the work of Apollos because Paul gave his life to Aquila and Priscilla, who gave their life to Apollos, who gave his life to the early church. And this is great. In the background, our intern Timothy's watching. And Paul's going to write a letter later to Timothy, 1 Timothy, second letter, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, Paul's going to say, Timothy, that which you have heard from me, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In other words, Timothy, you remember what we were doing? That's the plan. That's the plan for how you build the church. What you receive from God, you pass along to others who pass along to others. That's really all we're trying to do as a church. This, the formula for discipleship, for building a church, is pretty simple. I didn't say it's easy, but it's simple. You pass along what God gives to you to someone else. I was thinking about, like, we could do a litmus test right here. How many people, this is a little show of hands exercise, how many of people 
Did you learn about God? Maybe you came to faith in Christ because of someone else talking to you about Jesus. Somebody else, a person told you about God. Right. Everybody. Because that's his plan. Right? You can put your hand down. Yeah, that's his plan, right? Pretty simple. I think about our church and I think, man, we're watching it happen. There's 200 people from the Summit Church living somewhere overseas. And you know what all they're doing is they're taking what they received from God and they're getting on a boat now on a plane, you know, getting on a plane. And they go somewhere else and they give their life away. Because God's plan for their lives is bigger and better than theirs. And they've seen that. I see it in our gospel and work ministry. It's blowing up right now. These forums we do once a month because you are finally asking the question of, man, I want to invest my life for the sake of the gospel. The gospel is changing me. I want to give it to others. So we're doing these gospel and work forums to try and figure out what does that look like in the workplace? Man, I see it all the time and I'm so encouraged by it. But the question remains, who are you passing along the faith to. Here's some easy steps, maybe starter steps for you. Number one, maybe just try reading the Bible with somebody. I am actually started this a couple days ago with a guy who's, uh, he and his fiance, they hadn't really been around the things of God for like 10 years. They kind of used to go to a church maybe growing up, but don't really know much about God. So I was just like, hey, let's read the Bible together for 30 days and see what happens. And that's all we're doing. That's our starter step. Maybe that's one you can take with somebody to pass along the faith. Maybe it's telling a coworker that you've known for a while just about what God's doing in your life. Maybe it's coming and investing in the next generation. Man, our, our kids, especially our students, need some adults who will come alongside of them for their formative years. And if you're wondering if you're qualified for any of those steps, the question is simply, are you willing to live God's plan for your life and bring someone else along for the ride? That's it. That's discipleship. You're choosing to give your life over to God's plan and bring someone else along for the ride. I mean, I think about doing middle school ministry, and that is daunting to me. Middle schoolers are like weird because they're growing really fast and their voice is changing, right? And acne's showing up everywhere, and I've kind of blocked those years out of my life, right? You know the, you know the secret to middle school ministry? What's deodorant? Because they stink, people, right? That's actually all that is. But there's a second key to middle school ministry. First one, really, you should always have deodorant on hand. Go to middle school camp. The second one, though, is you're simply giving away to them what God has given to you. It's not that hard. It's not that complicated. That's it. The discipleship formula is not very difficult. It's not necessarily, I should say, it's not very complex. It might not be easy, but it's not complex. All right, second question to know if you're living God's plan for your life. Are you finding security in Christ or in your plan? See, the Lord, this is verses 9 and 10. We're going to go back there. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I'm with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in the city who are my people. Listen, everybody tries to find security somewhere and in something. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had Kids Week here at the church, and I've got a four-year-old named Ben, and he came home from Kids Week, and I guess the lesson was something about, like, God's going to protect you and be with you so you don't have to be scared. So he comes home and he goes, my kid has such great facial expressions. He's like, Dad, guess what? It's like, what, buddy? He said, you, when you get scared, you don't have to be scared because God's going to protect you. And I was like, my kid listened to something. Oh, my God, this is amazing, right? So I thought, great moment. We're going to really get in on this. So I said, buddy. How does God do that? And he said, well, 
if you see a bear, I'm like, where is this going, right? So if you see a bear, God might give you the strength to break it in half. <laughs> Looked at him and I said, might? That's a big might, buddy. He might not. <laughs> to which he said, yep, we'll have to see. And then he runs off. <laughs> My barbaric theologian that I'm raising, right? This, <laughs> I don't think that's a proper application, son, that you've made there. But the reality is... God does give Paul this, these two promises, doesn't he? He gives him the promise of his presence. He says, I am with you. And then he does give him this promise of protection. No harm will come to you. Here's the thing we have to hear from there. See, in the gospel message, God actually gives those same promises to us that he gave to Paul. You have his presence. Christ tells us in Matthew 28, I am with you Always, He says in John 14 that I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who's going to be a helper who will be in you and who will be with you, which means, Christian, our God is not a God that sits out on the edge of the universe and hopes that things goes okay and you pray to him and you hope that one day he might hear you. No, no, no. Our God is a God that is with us. He is present, walking with us. And you not only have that presence, that presence gives you his security. Now, not physical security, of course. I mean, Paul only had that for that one place in time. The next few verses will show you that. I mean, if a bear comes along, no promises, basically. But in Christ, you have a much deeper and more satisfying security. The eternal provision of your deepest need. The need to be reconciled to God. See, when we experience fear and uncertainty, it's a sign that we're missing something we're supposed to have. We are designed to feel secure, to feel at peace. And the loss of that security creates that feeling of uncertainty and fear. And the reason we don't have security is because we run away from the God who provides it. That's what the Bible calls sin. When you choose your plan over God's plan, when you choose your path over God's path, and when you run away from God, you're no longer protected by his presence. The gospel is the call to repent, or to turn from your plan and come back to the God who can give you the security that not even death can take away. So no matter what happens in life, it can only shake you so deep because your deepest need, that need for forgiveness, that need to be reconciled to God has been met in the death and resurrection of Christ. Y'all, the Apostle Paul is gonna talk about this over in Romans 8. This is amazing. So the book of Acts, by the way, is like the backdrop for all these New Testament letters. So in Romans chapter 8, Paul's going to write, and he's going to be remembering this moment where God spoke to him here in Acts 18, and he's going to say, what can separate us from the love of Christ? For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, and all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's he doing right there? He's passing along to the Roman church what he has received from God. Uh, way to think about this. My other son, Zeke, he's a year older than Ben. We went to a friend's house to watch the USA play Belgium soccer game that happened the other day. And my friend has a little dog, you know, nice little dog. Um, and usually he's not scared of dogs. He's got a bunch of big dogs that we're around a lot. But um, I guess for some reason he's kind of skittish the other day. So we go in the house and the dog comes up, you know, trying to lick us, whatever. And Zeke runs off. Right? And as he runs away, he's yelling, 
Daddy, 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 help me. And I said, Son, I can't help you if you run away from me. Come back over here. The safest place for you is with me. And some of you are like this with God. You're running from him when you need to be turning towards him. His presence and his protection are what you've always been looking for. So stop running away from the father who can save you. You need to rest in his salvation for you. And think about it. You're running from God. You're separated from God. But Christ, that's what sin does. It separates you from God. Christ took your sin. He separated himself from the Father so that you never have to be separated from him again. That's what God's reminding Paul of here. That's what you need to hear. And for some of you, that's what you finally need to rest in and believe. In Christ, you have the presence and protection of God. One more question to figure out whether you're living God's plan or your own plan for your life. Are you taking God-sized risks? Are you taking God-sized risks? See, those two promises that he gives Paul, they're attached to something, aren't they? Most of us kind of just want the two promises that God is with us and God will protect us, but God never gives us his presence and security without calling us to action. We want him to. We want to hear, I am with you, and I'm going to protect you. So now go do whatever you want to do. Go build your Candy Crush empire, right? Go build your career. Go have some friends that are kind of nice, and they won't judge you. But don't get too involved. Don't do anything that kind of makes you risk anything. I'll be over here in the corner if you need me to make sure you feel good. Otherwise, don't worry about me, but I'm around if you need me. That's what we kind of want to hear. It's not what he says. God never gives us his presence and his security without calling us to action. The way we say it sometimes around here, God's like a spiritual tornado. He never draws you in without flinging you back out. Here's what he says to Paul. Go on speaking for, that little word there, for the reason, the reason why I'm with you, the reason why no harm will come to you, is because I have many in this city who are my people. Paul, the work's not done here yet. I've got a plan for you. And the reason Paul was so afraid is because that plan involves some pretty big risks, right? It's like it should come with a death and dismemberment clause. And Paul's used to that. He knows he was taking a huge risk with his life in preaching the gospel. So here's my question to you. Is your commitment to the gospel causing you to risk anything? I'm not saying that you have to become a martyr. But I am telling you that God always calls his people to circumstances that require them to trust him. God always calls his people to circumstances that require them to trust him. So can you point to anywhere in your life where you're putting yourself out there in such a way that you really have to trust God? Another way to say it maybe is, is your identity wrapped up in a ladder or is it wrapped up in a cross? Is it wrapped up in a ladder where you are climbing, whether it's your social life, whether it's your corporate life, whether it's your career, and you feel like, man, I've just got to get where i got to get in life. Is it a ladder to elevate yourself? Or is your identity wrapped up in a cross that you're giving yourself away for? If your identity, if you can't think of anything that you are risking and putting yourself out there in such a way that you really have to trust God, 
maybe you're just living your life and your plan with kind of a religious candy coating on top. Many people are. Are you in a place where you're saying, God, this is what you've called me to, so I'm stepping out here. I don't see any way this happens unless you provide, and that scares me, but I'm trusting you. I think about our missions pastor who was climbing literally the corporate ladder. He was doing his thing for his plan, but he saw the people in Indonesia, and he said, man, those are people, and God's plan is to see every tribe and tongue come to worship him, and that's people that don't know him. So I'm stepping off my ladder, and I'm going over here to his plan. I have no idea, by the way, what I'm doing when I do that, but I know God's plan is to see the nations come and worship him, so I'm choosing his plan over mine, and that's scary, and I'm going to have to trust him for it to happen. Maybe you're saying something like, God, I know I'm the only Christian in this company of like 30 people, and I don't know where to start, but I'm trusting you, and I'm willing to put myself out there and risk those relationships where we're going to start talking about spiritual stuff, and I don't know what that'll mean for me. I want to just kind of keep that all to myself so that I can progress with this company, but instead I'm going to step out because your plan is to see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation come to faith, so I'm going to step out there, and I'm scared, but I'm trusting you, and that's my risk. God, it seems crazy. It's like you might be calling us to adopt, but how in the world would you ever provide the funds for us to adopt a child from another country? But it seems like your plan is to raise up worshipers from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It seems like what you're calling my family to, so I'm going to step out there, and I'm going to trust you, and I'm scared, but I'm trusting you. I know this relationship, God, may not be what you want for my life because she's not a believer, and I am, and that's going to deeply impact the way that I worship you for the rest of my life. So it seems like you're calling me to step out of it, but I'm scared of being alone. I'm scared of what this is going to do to our friendship, right? But I'm trusting you, and I'm stepping out and taking action. Maybe it's, God, this marriage is hard. It's frustrating. It drains the life out of me, and it feels like a dead end but you call me to love my spouse like Christ loves the church. So my risk is to stay in even when a bunch of people tell me I deserve to be happy somewhere else. I had a girl come up to me after the last service. She said, man, I'm battling because I really want to fit in with this crowd in my high school, but I feel like God's calling me away from that and I want to fight it, but I'm scared of what that means because I'm gonna be ostracized. That's real, that's a risk but the gospel is worth it, and that's what she's telling me. Listen, I want to tell you, I want to encourage you, some of you are in that spot right now. Like Aquila and Priscilla, you are following God wherever he takes you, but man, it looks kind of bleak, doesn't it? I want you to leave today encouraged by the promises of God to you, that he is with you, and you have everything you need in Christ. He's not forgotten about you. He might just be getting started with you, so keep running. You are bringing honor and glory to your God when you choose his plan over yours. So keep running. I know it looks bleak. I know it might look like a dead end, but he is there and he's writing something that you just can't see yet. So keep running. He will provide. I don't know how. I know that he will. There's one of my good friends here. He's in his early 60s and he, we hang out all the time regularly. He tells me, man, Spence, I want my greatest days of faith to be ahead of me not behind me. And that's because those who've been redeemed by Christ are never done trusting him for what's next. Listen, the great testimony of the church is that God saved us. Everyone in here who's a Christian who understands the gospel will kind of resonate with that. They will kind of say, man, I, it is a miracle that God saved me. Lest you, if you're not a Christian, 
If you want to know, don't put us up on a pedestal because we're all thinking in the back of our heads, I cannot believe that God would save me. And here's what I'm telling you, Christian. God didn't do that just for you. The way we say it a lot around here is he didn't just save you from something. He saved you for something, for his plan to make disciples all around the world. So the question is, what plan are you living for? What next step is God calling you to? You know, maybe it's simply trusting him today for salvation, to stop running, turn back to the Father who loves you, believe on Christ, and be reconciled to God. Maybe that's the step. Maybe it's investing your life into other believers here in our church family. You're gonna go get a aerosol can of deodorant and join our kids' ministry and student ministry, right? Maybe that's gonna be your step. Maybe it's stepping out in a conversation with a coworker or a friend or a family member that you're, you feel like there's no hope for them and you're right on your own, there's not, but you're starting to believe and take risks because you believe that God might have a bigger plan in store. Maybe it's leveraging your skill set for God's glory somewhere else. The interesting thing about this chapter is that everywhere Paul goes, <laughs> he was met by believers who were already there because the gospel had gone forward through everyday people who were sharing their lives, investing their lives with people who would then invest in others also and pass along the faith. Maybe that's you. I don't know what it is, but I know that God accomplishes his plan through everyday people who let go of their plan and take his. What's he calling you to? Let's pray. God, I, I don't know what, what you're calling people to in this room, but I know you're calling us to trust you and to step out into your plan and let go of our own. And that looks different, so I don't know what it looks like, but God, I pray that your spirit would convict. Would you overwhelm us this morning with the result of coming to church this morning, be overwhelmed by the grace of God for us and the call of God on us. And I need you, we need your spirit to make that happen. Convict us, Father. Help us to see the great glory of Christ and to respond with our lives. I pray for my brothers and sisters in here who are thinking through and beginning to stir through what that means for them. Give them the peace that your presence and your security brings so that they might do what you're calling them to do. We love you, Father. We say all of this. We ask all of this because we believe the same power that brought Christ out of the grave is at work within us. So in the mighty name of Jesus, we ask this of you. Amen.